0: Shatila Wasseling for our Collection Podcast Today, and we're talking AI and Buddhism in this episode. We're joined by Professor Suraj Khomnadoram, who's a professor of philosophy and director of the Center for Ethics of Science and Technology at Chulalongkorn University in Bangkok, Thailand. He has published books and articles on diverse issues such as bioethics, computer ethics, and the role that science and technology plays in the culture of Eastern countries. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Keisha. Nice to meet you. Same uh, here. Greetings from Bangkok. Uh,
0: thank you. Your work is so very interesting and I think much needed. Um, you've done a lot of work and research around uh, Buddhism and technology. And uh, you believe that insights derived from Buddhist teachings could benefit anyone working on AI ethics anywhere in the world. So not just in traditional Buddhist cultures, which are mostly East, Eastern and uh, Southeast Asia. Um, can you talk about how you think some of these Buddhist traditions, particularly those related to justice, accountability and compassion may apply to AI development?
1: Uh, I just finished a book on a Buddhist perspective on AI ethics. And I believe that Uh, the insights we got from uh, Buddhist teaching could be beneficial could be useful for people who are thinking of uh, what to do with AI and what what should be the guideline for AI ethics not only in Buddhist countries that would be a bit like uh, parochial or uh, like regional but uh, I think that uh, the the insights obtained from Buddhism could be applicable, I mean, not only in Thailand, but all over the world. Uh, And uh, the insights happen to coincide with much of what we, you know, the global community already believe. For example, uh, the value of compassion and uh, empathy, and uh, the need to relieve suffering of everybody. So these are the key Buddhist values, and I think those are human values also. One of the motivations that I had in writing the book is that I would like to uh, uh, be able to contribute to the global, sorry, global discussion on AI ethics uh, from within the perspective of my tradition. So what can uh, Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist ethics contribute to this uh, ongoing global discussion? So that's the motivation that I had uh, coming up with uh, the work that you mentioned.
0: How do you think this can actually be cultivated by those that are developing AI?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, cultivation is is a a, a right word. I mean, it's it's an important concept in uh, Buddhist teaching and also in Western tradition also, there are a lot of similarities between uh, the Greek traditions of uh, ethical thinking in the West and, and Buddhism I mean, there are mainly similarities. There are differences, of course, but we can focus more on the, the similarities at the moment. How can we uh, cultivate and how, how is the idea of cultivation important? It is important because by cultivating oneself, uh, you are kind of put on the right path. Toward the, the final end, uh, which is, uh, you know, we, we can call it in many ways. Could be supreme happiness, could be, could be uh, nirvana. That's the Buddhist term of, you know, uh, supreme perfection. Uh, in any way, the, the end toward which we cultivate ourselves represents the, the best. Uh, position the best situation that we we can achieve for ourselves. This sounds very kind of uh, uh, I mean too, too too high to achieve perhaps for some people. Uh, what I mean is that when when we talk about ethical perfection and the supreme end that we should cultivate. Ourselves for it sounds like, it sounds very religious. Of uh, of course, uh, Buddhism is a religion, but it does not have to be kind of uh, something that is uh, too far away from us. The cultivation toward the supreme end can be in many stages. So we don't have to achieve at the very end, uh, you know, in a short time. It is not necessary to to, to do that, but uh, the path can be a long one and it, it can be kind of uh, separated into different stages and one stage can be rather short and we can achieve that uh, intermediate stage in in a, Relatively shorter time, so uh, that is the the kind of a, an overall picture of self cultivation in Buddhism. And that is what the Buddhist practice, uh, you know, is constituted. So when we translate that into AI ethics, what what happens is that uh, we can. Think about what could be the supreme and the final end, the very you know uh, top uh, ethical perfection for AI ethics. It does not have to be able to be realized, you know, in a short yeah. time. But without a clear conception of the final end, then uh, we can find. You know, really, we we cannot find. Uh, any uh, clear direction uh, toward the end. What I mean is that uh, we are able, we, we want to be able to get a clear guideline for AI ethics and without the final end insight, then such a clear vision in uh, AI ethics guideline really cannot be conceptualized. So. Uh, we have the final end inside, but it takes some time in order to cultivate ourselves uh, before we get to that final end. And we can separate, uh, we can divide uh, the path into several stages. Uh, That is the more specific issues in AI ethics come in, like you know, we have to take care of people's privacy and we, we can attend to more concrete, more specific situations uh, according to this uh, or that uh, particular technology. So uh, basically, that is uh, the overall picture of, of cultivation.
0: talk about, uh, you know, cultivating these types of practices um, that mm-hmm. support you know, compassion and empathy and accountability. How do you think this can be cultivated by those that are developing AI, even though they don't go to that you know, final stage, like yes. programmers, uh, other technology creators?
1: Yes, uh, we can look at a particular technology. Uh, for example, we have facial recognition technology which is being used and being developed by many parties. Uh, One thing that many people are concerned with, you know, with this technology is that uh, the technology facial recognition can be used to uh, single out groups of people Mm -hmm. and uh, it can be uh, discriminated. And uh, instead of Using the technology for beneficial purposes to relieve suffering, for example, the technology can be used in such a way that kind of uh, exacerbates the existing inequality and the, the uh, power gap among groups of people. Uh, there are many examples. For example, in uh, in in China. Uh, the technology, it is reported that uh, facial recognition has been used in in schools in order to find students who are, well, uh, not very attentive uh, in their classes or who show potentials or signs of, you know, uh, not being a good student, you know. Uh, and, And that, you know, apart from the uh, very real possibilities that the technology can fail, that the algorithm can fail, because we are talking about very new technology that is now being developed. The the use of the technology reflects the mindset of the people in in such a way that uh, instead of finding ways to... Use the technology to reduce inequality and to increase social justice. Uh, they seem to be doing the opposite. So, by bringing in this, uh, you know, a guideline that is inspired by Buddhist philosophy, perhaps because this is what uh, we philosophers have been doing. We suggest alternative ways of thinking we suggest that perhaps things could be looked at in a different ways and perhaps there could be a kind of a different alternative set of practices that might be better in order to realize the the potential for all of us to achieve like you know, because in Buddhism we believe that everybody has or should uh, move or practice oneself in order to uh, arrive at this final state that 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 uh, supreme end uh, where everyone is is free from suffering, uh, and, and that can be translated into kind of a, how to practice oneself in order to improve oneself. Well, uh, uh, there can be arguments as to, you know, I think that uh, this represents uh, something good and another one thinks, another thing represents her own uh, good and the goods of two or more people do not have to be the same. That's all right. That's perfectly acceptable. In Buddhism, uh, people have to uh, look at whatever that um, brings about their own happiness in their own way. And it is believed that in the end I mean, in the end, uh, because of the nature of human being and and the, the nature of... Uh, our relations uh, toward one another in society. Uh, when we look at the ends or what makes for the goods of individual people in more abstract terms, they could come out like kind of more or less the same. That's why people can agree on that, you know, uh, uh, things like. Uh, Love and compassion and uh, uh, wishing well for each other are, are good things to have. I mean, and it is that is quite universal, and, and, and that can work as kind of a, a kind of a key uh, motivation or uh, basis for an AI ethics. We, we, we have to focus uh, both at the more general level and more specific technologies.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you also talk about the concept of non-self in Buddhism. Uh, how do you think this concept or what, how do you describe this concept and how do you think it relates to uh, user privacy?
1: Uh, The non-self, right? Uh, Yes, that's a um, rather difficult thing to understand, but it's not too difficult. The idea is that, uh, well, everybody has a self and Buddhism does not deny that at all. So I have my own self. When somebody calls me by my name, I answer to the call and I have a name and the, my name kind of uh, picks me out, you know, uh, from among like billions of other people. So in, in that sense, I have a self uh, and I can tell you a story about myself, how I came to be a, you know, a lecturer in philosophy and how I came to be interested in Buddhist aspect of AI ethics and so on. In that sense, the, uh, the ordinary sense of the self is, is, is uh, something that happens in everyday life and it's uh, perceptible, it's uh, tangible. But the uh, idea in Buddhist philosophy that can be found in the teaching on the non-self, is that the ordinary sense of the self that I have been talking about, when we analyze that sense more uh, in more detail, we find that there is no uh, abiding entity in such a way that Uh, we can say that that abiding entity is the core of my own self. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that abiding entity uh, would be something that represents the real me, uh, the real me Uh, in in ancient times, many religions, many people believed in the soul. And also in India, uh, Buddhists in ancient times debated uh, very often with uh, Hindus and those who believed in the existence of the immaterial soul, which uh, was believed to be the essence of a uh, an individual person. In that sense, Buddhism denies the existence of uh, that abiding entity, that, the, the soul, the immaterial soul. So, the argument is that you cannot find the immaterial soul when you analyze your understanding or your perceptions whatever happens that make up for your own sense of the self. For example, you look at your own body. Uh, The body is changing all the time. Uh, People grow up, people grow older and their skin gets kind of wrinkled when they are aged and so on and so on. So it's not possible to find within the body anything that stays the same. Uh, In physiology, it might be the case that some brain cells stay the same throughout the body. Uh, Could be the case, Uh, but those brain cells are not the same as uh, me i mean i mean uh, they they are only some of the cells that uh, among the trillions and trillions of cells that make up my body, many of which change all the time and are replaced all the time and this uh, this group of uh you know, sales. Perhaps I am not sure, but uh, there there could be even let us grant that there could be this, uh, you know groups of sales that that are not changing throughout someone's life. Even so, they are not the same as the person uh, because the person is much more, much much more than than uh, those cells uh, whereas the abiding entity that makes up for the essence of the person am i going too deep into philosophy and
0: <laughs> i was wondering how you thought it related to privacy
1: yes yes uh, i'm i uh, i will get to that uh just just uh you know let me finish up the philosophy uh, <laughs> a little bit more uh well uh i was talking about the essence what what makes up for the real me the real suraj or the real kesha or you know any bodies uh and that does not seem to be equal to the small number of cells which are not changing so we look at the body and everything seems to be changing and those that are not changing are like you know not not very uh, relevant uh, we look at the mind and it's even worse. I mean, uh, I used to think one way and now 10 minutes gone, I'm thinking another way <laughs> and I forgot what I thought 10 minutes ago. <laughs> people's thoughts change very fast, much faster than people's body. So the, the mind is worse, it's always changing and if you look at the mind, that is nothing. I mean, this is absolutely nothing that stays the same. Uh, you look at the brain, but there is a huge question whether we can equate the brain with the mind. Uh, that's a whole, you know, we can spend like, you know, one semester uh, about that. And coming to your question about privacy, which is a very important, very, very interesting question, uh, the key idea of Privacy is an individual thing. Uh, It's my own privacy that is in question and that needs to be protected through uh, ethical and legal mechanisms. Uh, Why? Otherwise I cannot have any base in which I can kind of relax and be myself. If my life is under constant surveillance and uh, if my life is being watched by, you know, whomever, the authorities, my parents, whatever, uh, all the time, then, you know, it's kind of uh, suffering and and Buddhism kind of tends, or uh, wants to eliminate suffering. And more than that, uh, when someone's life is under constant surveillance, in this case, it shows a gap of power, a a real political gap of power between uh, those who are watching and those who are being watched. Uh, And that is very unhealthy in a democracy. So there is a clear justification why uh, each individual's right to his or her privacy needs to be respected. So uh, that is the justification, but uh, Buddhism, as I have said, you know, uh, teaches that ultimately, in the end, uh, there is no self, doctrine of no self. But privacy is privacy of an individual. I mean, individual uh, as apart from other individuals is my own privacy, privacy of my own self, uh, both my own body. And my own mind that needs to be protected. So, how do you do? How do you you know reconcile all that? Well, uh, when I started to talk about the Buddhist idea on the self, I mentioned that Buddhism does not deny. The ordinary sense of the self. I mean, the uh, we 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 don't go into philosophy. Uh, you are calling me, you send me emails, and we have an appointment to talk with each other, uh, beginning mm-hmm. at five o'clock my time, ten o'clock your time. Uh, so, you. Uh, and me you know, our selves are kind of in communication and this this is the ordinary sense of the self which is mm-hmm. not denied in Buddhism because it's something that we have to deal with all the time and, and it is this ordinary ordinary sense of the self that is protected and it's since it's not denied in Buddhism and since uh, when we talk about privacy, it is the privacy of the ordinary sense of the self that is at issue. Is and that is being discussed, being talked about. It's not the the uh, deep metaphysical idea of the non-self. Even though yes, when we analyze the ordinary sense of the self, we find that there is nothing. Uh, but when you and I, for example, discuss about privacy or AI ethics, or uh, discuss the time uh, where we can talk uh, to to set up our interview, our talk together, we are not talking about uh, this uh, at at this deep metaphysical level. We are talking about you know at the ordinary level that people are talking at this level. All the time. So mm-hmm. there are separate levels, even though they are connected. But, but when we talk about privacy in Buddhism, uh, we do not have to go that deep into the metaphysics.
0: Okay.
1: So, in a nutshell, you know, I can go on, but, you know, <laughs> philosophers <laughs> tend to be like this.
0: It's really interesting. We need more philosophers to, to tackle these issues. Um, mm-hmm. and you also talk about the concept of compassion called karuna yes. in relation to intellectual property rights, can you explain mm-hmm. a bit about this
1: oh that's another of my work uh, uh, let, let us talk about compassion first uh, the Sanskrit term the, the you know, old Indian language uh, term for that of course as you said is karuna It's it consists of two aspects. One aspect is that uh, when you have compassion, you have the desire to help other people, and in fact, it includes other sentient beings. That the and you know Buddhist that's that's the term that Buddhists love to use, sentient beings, beings can feel, uh, including animals. So the desire to help alleviate sufferings of sentient beings, that is one aspect of karuna. And why do you have the desire? Because you feel that you are uh, in a sense, one and the same with all sentient beings with all, you know, uh, with everyone and and with all the animals. Uh, Why? Because uh, they all share one thing in common in that uh, everyone wants to be free from suffering. What any kind of suffering, anything that a uh, being wants to get away from, you know, and, and this is shared by everyone and every animal. Uh, so we can imagine what it would be like for someone else to be suffering and uh, to, to, to want to get away from the suffering that she is experiencing. So I can uh, imagine what it would be like in that case. And as a result of this imagining, I have the desire to do whatever I can to help her uh, get released from the suffering. That That is compassion, the first aspect of compassion. And the second aspect is more more technical is the realization, the understanding that everything is uh, interdependent. Everything is connected with one another. And the two aspects uh, kind of go with each other all the time because uh, when you realize that everything and everyone is deeply connected, then you have the empathy that I talked about when I talked about the, the, the first aspect, the first sense of compassion, you feel the desire because you understand that everything and everyone is connected.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right, so that's compassion. And uh, it goes the other way also when you feel the desire, then uh, your realization that everything is connected Goals. I mean, uh, it's it's deeper. It's, it's like more. You become you become more convinced of the truth of, of the second aspect of the realization. So that's compassion. And how is it relevant to AI ethics? Uh, in many ways, because for example, let us look at a uh, company. Uh, by the way, AI ethics can be used uh, both by private companies, you know a, a software company and by the state, uh, by the political authorities and they are being used both by both at, uh, and uh, at this time and the the guideline needs to be you know addressed to both of them. Uh, let us look at a private company. Uh, they have to have something that kind of provides a guideline. It could be uh, law, or could be something softer. Uh, if we have time left, we can talk about the means of uh, regulation. But but that comes afterward because we are talking about the key issue here. Uh, I'm thinking of an example. Uh, An example could be a giant company like Google and it collects huge amount of data, you know, every day on uh, everybody who is using their product. And uh, nowadays, uh, big data go hand in hand with machine learning and AI. So AI uh, has become very powerful because of big data. So the two go together. And one thing that a company such as Google is capable of doing is to uh, make predictions about our behavior based on the data that we have provided to the company you know, in exchange for their services, uh, be it search or Google maps or whatever. So it is it is this very real power that the company has that makes it, you know, uh, very important that they, they become responsible for what they are doing. So, uh, the idea of compassion comes in at this stage where uh, the company needs to be compassionate in this Buddhist uh, sense, Uh, or the company needs to learn to cultivate itself through compassion. It sounds like wishy-washy, but it doesn't have to be that way because compassion can be a basis for kind of a, a stronger regulations could be even, you know, a basis for uh, a law or international regulation on on, uh, how uh, such a company operates. But the key idea is that uh, whatever the company is doing must be informed by uh, these two aspects of compassion, Uh, the desire to help others, to be free from suffering, to, to create goods in the world uh, to, to, I mean, it's abstract, but uh, uh, one has to translate this uh, abstract guideline, you know, to uh, eliminate suffering into concrete, more specific, when, when we come to more specific examples. And the company needs to realize that everything is interdependent. So... The company does not exist in a vacuum, and uh, decide to uh, maximize its profit to the exclusion of everything else might might not be tenable in the long run. So, in order to the company and everybody else, you know, all of us to prosper and flourish together. Uh, Everybody needs to to find a way to to become more ethical. So uh, that's in a nutshell is is what we understand as uh, the contribution of the concept of compassion into AI ethics guidelines.
0: Okay. And what about the intellectual property rights aspect?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Sorry, I missed that. Uh, well, we can stay with a software company, a giant software company, and it has uh, a team of lawyers looking at their IP rights and so on. So by being compassion, uh, one thing that uh, such a company uh, should not do, is to uh, to keep the IP rights so jealously, uh, mm-hmm. so that uh, nobody else can benefit from them apart from the owner of those rights. I mean, uh, we can see this in more uh, concrete aspect if we switch our example to a pharmaceutical company, which depends a lot on, on patents and on uh, intellectual property. And the idea that I'm advocating is the same. Uh, a pharmaceutical company develops a, a medicine And the standard picture is of course that, you know, the company owns the patent for the medicine and and it can sell the medicine at a premium price uh, in order to recoup their investment for the medicine. And for a a period of time, like 15 years, 20 years, uh, the company is entitled to a monopoly, a virtual monopoly on, on the medicine that it has developed, okay. you know, as a way to, as a way to return their investment. Now, this is the standard picture. But but uh, there could be some emergency circumstances where there is a real need for the medicine by those in the. Um, poorer economies in the third world economies, for example, those countries might not be able to to pay this premium price to uh, the company for the medicine that they need. So uh, this is where the principle of compassion comes in very, very clearly, very, you know, very visibly. So they need to be, the company needs to be compassionate. In in the technical sense, in, in the normal sense, uh, when I say that the company has to be compassionate, you know, people think, oh, they need to have sympathy, they need to pity uh, those countries. That is not the Buddhist sense. The Buddhist sense is more technical. Uh, uh, the company needs to feel the desire to alleviate, help alleviate the sufferings of others because everyone stays in this Globe on on this Earth together. So if the company uh, uses its monopoly power to keep the medicine uh, from those who really need it but are not able to pay, then it would create a kind of backlash, uh, and and the company would find itself you know it is uh, not being trusted or uh, not not. You know thought of in a good way by by those who are those who are involved in in the whole thing so uh i I wrote about this in my earlier paper before i uh wrote about AI and Buddhism in in this book yes
0: but well, given the situation we are in right now with the pandemic, it seems particularly of relevant. course yes
1: <laughs> yeah yeah right right certainly oh, yeah
0: interconnectedness compassion um, how do you think the you know traditions like for example Buddhist traditions in let's say China compares with the West Western tradition um, you know kind of leaning on the Greek traditions in the development of AI
1: yes uh, in China China is a um, strange uh, situation <laughs> because because uh they they have only recently come back to religions i mean uh in the 60s and the 70s they uh very much turned their backs against their religious tradition mm-hmm. because uh they were they still are communists. But during the 60s and 70s, they were very much like uh, textbook communists. I mean, they were materialists and they, they consciously uh, rebelled against their own tradition, their own uh, religious tradition, including Buddhism and Confucianism and everything uh, in between. So they, they kind of shut down many Buddhist temples and drove many monks uh, out of the temples and so on. So uh, the situation in China is uh, strange in in this sense because in Thailand, in my country, we have much stronger continuity between the past and the present. So people are still religious and people still go to temples and and the changes are much more gradual and and natural. Mm -hmm. So uh, let us look at China first. Uh, people have been granted more freedom. And as a result, uh, Buddhist temples have you know, come back and, and monks have come back. But uh, this situation is uh, taking place uh, together with the, the very uh, fast drive, of the country toward like contemporary capitalism, uh, c- capitalism based on uh, information technology and AI and and mobile phones and you know uh, all kinds of electronic gadgets. We are talking about the situation right now. So it remains to be seen how uh, the indigenous the uh, the the. Uh, traditions that the Chinese have had for millennia uh, could survive or how how it, it could be uh, adapted in order to suit the uh, very fast-paced capitalism that uh, China is experiencing so in that sense uh, well there there are both similarities and differences between China and the West, uh, because the traditions are different. They have Confucianism, they have Buddhism, they have uh, Taoism and so on. And those are different from the West. And are uh, you asked about uh, similarities with the Greeks. And, and this is very interesting. And I, I wrote about this uh, quite a lot in the book. Uh, If we look at the ancient Greeks, they have the same overall structure of ethical thinking, like in Buddhism, because they they also have the concept of the final end, the supreme end of human activity. According to Aristotle, uh, he uses the term Greek word, eudaimonia, the state where you you are free totally free and totally happy totally in tune with uh yourself and it's very much like buddhism but the key differences in like aristotle and the buddha is that aristotle believes in the the abiding entity the essence the very real essence of an entity whereas the buddha denies it so the difference is at the metaphysical level, but the structure of ethics is the same in mm. both traditions. So we can uh, either look at the similarities or the differences. Uh, as for the ethics, they are about the same. And, and uh, there, there are differences uh, in, in terms of how, how the ethical guidelines are explained. Uh, we can go into that, you know, if we you know, uh, mm. have another podcast on <laughs> Aristotle's ethics. Uh, but, you but, back. but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, to to answer your question shortly, uh, the fact that there are both uh, similarities and differences make it very interesting to compare and contrast the traditions. Because if they are completely different, there there is nothing to to compare. If they are completely the same, then there's no point in doing the comparison. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And leading off of that, as I think you mentioned, you've worked on ethically aligned design for the IEEE Global Initiative on Ethics of Autonomous and Intelligent Systems. Um, You know, And this exact Buddhism, Uh, Ubuntu, Confucianism is considered, they they all considered. Can you tell us a bit about your work on this?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I was lucky that I was invited by this group of people who work for the IEEE. Uh, They are engineers, most of them are engineers who are interested also in uh, the ethical aspects of what they are doing. And somehow they got hold of me. Uh, Jared Bilby, for example, and uh, John Heavens, they contacted me. Uh, they told me that they were doing this project on ethics of AI. Uh, they they don't call it AI. They call it uh, autonomous and intelligent systems because they want to emphasize the fact that uh, the systems are not artificial intelligent they are not intelligent I mean uh, they they are not the AI that uh, is there in popular imagination like you find in Hollywood movies mm-hmm. uh, so they are talking about software algorithms that can do very specific things and and they want to talk about you know uh, ethical guidelines for that and the idea which is very original is that they want to be more inclusive in the sense that the traditions that they refer to when they talk about ethics of you know autonomous systems uh, does not have to be exclusively Western. So they looked out and they searched for people who were doing works on the, the you know, Eastern mm-hmm. traditions or non-Western traditions in ethics. I think that was why they found me. And we discussed among ourselves, you know, virtually through like uh, the, uh, the computer for quite some time. And, and in the end, uh, we came up with this work on, uh, as you said, ethically aligned design prepared mm-hmm. by the IEEE, yes. And I, contribute uh, in a small section in the book on the Buddhist aspect of, of the autonomous system, ethics of autonomous systems. And yeah. uh, by the way, uh, that work with the IEEE led to you know my own kind of uh, expansion of the idea into the book on ethics of AI, Buddhist perspective. Mm-hmm.
0: And are you going to be Probably working with other um, philosophers um, from non-Western traditions um, on, you know, looking at this and coming together. One thing that I have found in in reading like ancient texts, there's a lot of there's even though there's variations and differences, there's a lot of similarity as well in basic yes, principles yes. of, you know, compassion, interdependence. Of oneness and these types of things. Um, So, I think it would be really, really good for people from different traditions to come together to work on guidelines for AI because it affects all of us at the end. Um, For that, like, you know, that ultimate point that we may never necessarily reach, as you explained, but to have that intention set at a global level.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah, you are um, right uh, very much. So Uh, that's what I've been doing and thinking for the past like few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, and uh, AI is very fast changing technology. Uh, We have to keep watching it. And and I'm I'm also lucky uh, in the sense that I have been working with people who uh, in, in AI, I mean, there are technicians and computer scientists who are writing the codes for AI. So, and, and they want to know what other people think of what they are doing and what kind of contributions they could make uh, for society. Because uh, by talking with people like myself, they can, uh, you know, have a kind of a more a, a wider uh, perspective on what they are doing. So I think and that is uh, the kind of contribution that I have been uh, doing in my small part.
0: Mm-hmm. And you also talk about machine enlightenment. What do you mean by this?
1: <laughs> yes, that's the concept in, in, uh, in that robotics, I try, like try robotics to... and AI. Right, right. Uh, that's the concept that I try to develop. Okay. Uh, in a way, it's a, uh, it's a metaphor. Uh, I, I did not intend it to be a literal uh, saying that machines can achieve enlightenment. By the way, enlightenment is the Buddhist term for the, the, the supreme end that we've been talking about since the beginning of our Our talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Aristotle called it eudaimonia. Uh, There are several English translations, Mm -hmm. one of which is human flourishing. And Buddhists talk of the same thing, the the end of human activity as nirvana. That's the Sanskrit term. And it's translated into English as enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So uh, by machine enlightenment, I mean, the supreme end, the final end in the same manner for machines. Because when we talk about machine ethics, ethics for machines, especially uh, sophisticated, very complicated machines like AI, uh, which are capable of doing things on their own. I mean, they are capable of autonomous actions. So they need to be informed with a way that they themselves know how to behave or how to cultivate themselves, how to realize the very potential that makes themselves the very thing, the very best thing that they can be, the, the, that they can achieve. So that is enlightenment for them. So It doesn't have to be like the real enlightenment because they are machines and nobody really knows whether they can become conscious yet. I mean, uh, that is a controversial issue. So, enlightenment in this sense is a metaphor, so, does not imply that uh, the machine has to be conscious Mm -hmm. because when we talk about, you know, in our ordinary sense, when someone becomes enlightened, of course he or she has to become, has to be conscious first, otherwise you know, there is no point in talking about her becoming enlightened. That is the ordinary sense, but the metaphorical sense that I'm using in the book is that for machines to be able ultimately to achieve the very end, the very Perfection that uh, the machine, that machine is designed for. Uh, The the process of achieving that perfection cannot fail to include the ethical aspect. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it cannot be uh, achievement of the, the final end of that particular machine. And the achievement of that particular end is uh, metaphorically speaking machine enlightenment. Uh, That is a a more abstract way of putting it. Uh, Let us look at an example. For example, uh, we can look at, uh, well, uh, facial recognition technology. Uh, the computer scientists can imagine what it would be like for a facial recognition algorithm to be absolutely perfect and, and, and to do everything that the designer or the programmer wants it to be able to do. I mean, it has to be uh, the very top, the very standard uh, by which uh, the performance of any algorithm in facial recognition uh, has, to, has to compare with. I mean, the, the absolute, the highest benchmark uh, for any, any facial recognition algorithms. So, What I am arguing is that that very top, the very ethical uh, perfection standard has to include the idea that uh, the algorithm be ethical and compassionate. And by compassionate, it means the, the two aspects that Uh, we have been talking about earlier. So those are inescapably, I mean, uh, necessarily part of the supreme end of any uh, possible facial cognition. Algorithm. So the algorithm cannot just you know uh, maximize profits for the owner. That would not be compassionate. That would not be uh, uh, ethical. So you know when when will you when you translate that sentence into something that can be uh, worked on in a more concrete, more specific levels. That is what I'm I'm doing, uh, and by uh, using. The concept of machine enlightenment. Uh, we can compare uh, several machines together and see how 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 well they.